Good morning. Take a trip with me, if you will, back to 2000. If you're in here and that involves you going back before you were born, please don't tell me. It will just make me sad. Go back to 2000. Backstreet Boys were big, Eminem was blowing up everywhere, and so bleached hair was a thing. It was a big thing. In 2000, I was in my sophomore year of college, and I had gone abroad. So I was studying in Jerusalem, Israel, and I get bored. Like, I like trying new things, and so I was like, hey, I'm, you know what? I'm going to bleach my hair. Let me do that. So I go to the pharmacy, and I kind of ask to be pointed in this direction, and I, and I get this box the person helps me out, just kind of points to it, and I pick it up. Uh, and I'm not 100% sure what I'm getting because I can't read Hebrew. <laughs> but I think we were able to, like, point out, or like, hey, this, you know, like, oh, okay, I think that's good. Uh, so I get it back to, uh, to campus, and uh, that night I get ready to do this thing. And so I, I open the box up, and it's got these two different bottles. And I just figured there'd be some English somewhere. I th- Like, not that this would be made in English. I'm in Israel. It's in Hebrew. I get that. But, you know, when you buy instructions, there's like 17 languages sometimes. So I'm like, surely there'll be English somewhere. No. No, there wasn't. So I figured, well, you probably have to combine these two things, right? I mean, surely that's why they give you this bottle. So I mix it together and I put it in my hair and it's kind of like light bluish, whitish. And I cover everything and I go to play cards with some friends and time passes, and we're playing, and it's fun. And I eventually get hungry, and I get up to go to the bathroom, and I happen to walk by a mirror, and I'm like, wait a minute. I still have stuff in my hair. I didn't know how long to leave it in for, because again, I can't read the instructions. And then I realized, it is starting to burn a little bit. So I run to the bathroom, and I, and I rinse this out, and it was very light. Very light. Also, it was itchy. <laughs> Probably left it on too long, but I didn't know. Like, I, I can't read that stuff. I, I had no clue what I was doing. And all that does is tell me instructions are kind of important. They're kind of important, right? It's a thing. They have a purpose. We don't always like to live that way. We don't always like to believe that's true. But instructions have a purpose. So what happens when, when we ignore those? Or what's the, what is the purpose for them? And particularly, what does that have to do with our relationship with God? Well, as we continue our series, The Getaway, on the book of Exodus, we're going to look at that idea today. Because where we are in our story, if you've been with us, is that Hebrews have been in Egypt, and that God said, I'm coming. He's been telling them that he's coming to rescue them. Really, it's been 400 years, but he promised that he would come and rescue them. He's heard their cries. He's raised up a leader. He's brought these plagues down upon Egypt. They finally let them go. They're out in the wilderness. And Jerry talked last week about how God was providing for them. Literally, food fell from the sky. God was providing for them. As we pick up from there, the next chunk we're going to look at, Exodus 19 to 24, tells the story of how God then begins preparing his people to be the nation that he's call them to be. He's re- God's really nation building right here. And so what he does, what it starts with, is he gives them instructions. He gives them his law. He gives them rules. That's where we, where we see. And then 
One of the parts of Exodus that people are familiar with, if you happen to know anything about it, is the Ten Commandments. There's been movies made about it. I mean, that's like a, that's like a thing. And the Ten Commandments happen right here in this chunk, where God gives his law, he passes it down to Moses for his people. And that's what we're going we're to look at today. But it, this whole story, all this section we're looking at, it all starts with a moment where God shows up in a real and powerful way before Israel. Imagine what it must have been like if you were there when on the morning of the third day, thunder roared and lightning flashed and a dense cloud came down on the mountain. There was a long, loud blast from a ram's horn and all the people trembled. Moses led them out from the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. All of Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in the form of fire. The smoke billowed into the sky like smoke from a brick kiln and the whole mountain shook violently as the blast of the ram's horn grew louder and louder. Moses spoke and God thundered his reply. What must that have been like? It's important that we start at that spot because there are times that we can read the Bible like this sterile textbook of things, of these like made up stories. But this is real. These are real people, God interacting in real ways. And imagine what that must have been like. You stand at the foot of a mountain that is consumed by smoke because it's on fire. And then you hear thunder speaking as lightning flashes. That is brain melting. Think of the awesome display of power that must be. I mean, I'm moved when, when I see a storm roll through. I can't imagine what, what it must have been like to see that. But that's the way God showed up to his people. And it's in that context that he hands down his rules, his law. We're going to look at two things this morning, two important aspects about, about us and about God, it, particularly as it interacts with this idea of God's law. And the first is this, at our core... We are rule followers. At our core, we are rule followers. And if, if we're honest, th- this passage, right, this kind of, this part of the Bible, this is often what people think of when they think of the Bible, particularly the Old Testament. It's these rules. It's a list of things that I have to do or not do, right? It's, it's God's trying to boss me around and tell me what to do. I mean, that's really the way we think of the Ten Commandments often, right? God's telling people to do this stuff says, don't have any idols before me, right? You must not, or you know other gods before you. Don't make any idols. Don't misuse the name of the Lord or remember to observe the Sabbath day or honor your father and mother. Parents, I'm going to pause so you can nudge your children. (laughs) You must not murder. That's a good one. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely against your neighbor. You must not covet your neighbor's house or your neighbor's wife or a servant or a donkey even if it's a really good-looking donkey. God lays out these rules. So why? Why would he give these rules? Why, why the law? What's God trying to do here with this? Well, the law provides a framework for society, right? The, the law provides guidelines for us. But what it really does at a human level is the law shows us that we struggle to live together well, right? The law points that out. The laws are not a solution. Laws point out the problem. 
and laws exist because there is a problem. Right? If we could live together well, we wouldn't need them. The fact that we need them points out that, that there's an issue in our hearts that we're, that we're drawn certain ways. In fact, I, I read a, a, a study this week and the authors said in the midst of this, numerous studies demonstrate that when the threat of punishment is removed, people tend to disregard social norms. What that means is without laws, people are like, yeah, I'm just gonna take that. That looks pretty good. That we're drawn that way. Because our hearts kind of lead us astray. We want what we want and we can kind of convince ourselves and rationalize things and and laws define the playing field. Really, ultimately, what, what laws do, what rules do here as laws show us where we fall short, they point out where we fail. They serve as a benchmark and remind us when we can't hit it. God gave this law to us for a reason. He gave us these as sort of his instructions to show us the life that he created us to know and to show us that we need his help in experiencing that. His law points out how much we need him. Because right? God created us and knows us and wired us a certain way, and so he's given us this path to say this is the way to experience a life. But really what it does is it shows us that we can't keep those perfectly. We can't be perfect rule followers. Even though that's, I think, who we are at our core. I mean, what's your attitude towards rules? Are you a rule follower? Or are you less of a rule follower. Like, I don't want to say rule breaker because I'm definitely on this end of the spectrum and that just sounds super negative. So let's say, are you a rule follower or like, um, you have a more casual relationship? <laughs> I worked with a, with, a, with a guy named Pete and Pete and I were opposite ends of the spectrum and it was fascinating because Pete wanted to know what the rules were so he could order his life within that and, and I'm on the other end going like, ah, quit harshing my vibe rules. But the irony is our attitude towards rules are both unhealthy in a way. They both, they're both unhealthy. Because here's the thing. If you're a rule follower and you're saying, hey, there's rules that I'm following, that's great. But if you're not a rule follower, you're still actually following rules. They're just your own. You're just following your own rules. And we do that for lots of different reasons. Sometimes it's fear of consequences. Sometimes we're, we're at our base level. I think we're rule followers, whether it's our rules or someone else's, because of fear of consequences. If I don't do these things, then I'm going to get in trouble. Or in a spiritual context, I follow the rules because I don't want God to be mad at me. Because there's fear at the root of that. And that's just not us. We see in, in Exodus chapter 20, 18 and 19, it says, when the people heard the thunder and the loud blast of the ram's horn, and when they saw the flashes of lightning and the smoke billowing from the mountain, they stood at a distance, trembling with fear. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but don't let God speak directly to us or we'll die. They saw God's power and they were afraid. They drew away from it. At some level, they knew they needed someone to make that relationship possible because they look at that, that power and go, I can't possibly measure up to that. For some of us, that's how we view God too. That we look at that and go, man, I'm just, I, I'm not good enough. What would God possibly want to do with me? 
And so then our attitude towards rules become, I'm going to keep them so that, that God will love me, right? I'm going to earn God's love by, by being good. I'm going to go to church and, and, and tithe and do, the, do these good things so that I can earn God's love, right? God will love me if I do those things. But that's not the way that God works. For some of us, it's rebelliousness. We, we create our own rules and go, I think I know what's best for me and I know how to find my own good. For some of us, it's learned behavior. It's what we've experienced in our past or while we were growing up. And, and sometimes it's simply just easier to follow rules. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. But the problem with that is that blind action, it, it requires less of us. It's just actions. It's just doing certain things. It doesn't require my heart. And that's what God really wants. Being good to get something back is ultimately empty. It's not fulfilling in the way that we want and know that we need at our core. And you, you get that. I know you get that. We, we get that at, at a heart level because imagine if you found out that your, your spouse was rewarded in some way to be in a relationship with you. By the way, now is not the time to think to yourself, but my wife is so lucky to be married to me. I mean, look at this. This is not the time. Imagine if you found out that your wife was rewarded for being married to you. What? That would be such a betrayal. Because it would make you question everything that had come before it. Imagine if you're not married, your, your best friend has been paid to be your best friend. That shapes every experience that you've had together. You know, you don't look at them and go, man, great for you. We had good times and you got paid. Now you doubt everything they've said, everything they've done. When we live as a rule follower, we engage with God on a transactional basis. What we're saying to God is, I'll do this for you so that you do for me what I want. We say, God, I'll do this for you. I'll give you what you want, but you got to give me what I want. And that's just not the way it works. Rule following doesn't get us to where we truly want to go. It's like an artificial flower. It looks good on the surface, but it's really an imitation of the real thing. It's not the real thing because there's no life there. There's no life there. Right? Laws are, are cold and dispassionate. It sets a standard. It says, do this or else. And at our core, I think we're, we're drawn that way to justify ourselves or to, to earn love for ourselves. We, we want to work on our relationship with God by saying, all right, what do I have to do? Really, that's the difference between Christianity and every religion I'm aware of is that every religion that, that, I, that I'm aware of is a path to God, a means to get to God, the things you do in order for God to love you. It's rule following. But that's not what God is laying out here in Exodus because even though he gives the law in these verses, even though he lays that out, something significant happens first. At his core, God is a covenant keeper. It's the second thing we're going to look at. At his core, God is a covenant keeper. Now, what's a covenant, right? It's a legal contract between two parties. It's a binding contract. Both parties have responsibilities in this. And it's a biblical idea that's really traced all throughout Scripture. One of the best pictures of what a covenant is, is back in Genesis with Abraham. 
God has promised Abraham this, this great promise that he'll, his descendants will, will be so numerous they can't be counted and he'll bless the nations through his family. That's a, quite a legacy. And God makes a promise with him. And what he does is he causes Abraham to fall asleep because what you would do when, when you made a covenant is the, the Hebrew would literally mean you would cut a covenant because you would take animals and you'd cut them in half, it's gross, and you'd Set either half on both, you'd make a little path and you'd set the animal halves on each side and the blood would kind of pool down in the middle in between and you'd walk what's called the blood path. And as you walked this blood path, the blood would kind of spatter up on the hem of your garment and the picture would be, may this happen to me if I don't keep my word. Does that make sense? That's what a covenant would have looked like, a binding contract. But God's going to make a covenant with Abraham, but he causes Abraham to fall asleep for a very specific reason. And then God gives him this, this image, and it's really God kind of walks the blood path and then walks the blood path again, because what he's doing is saying, Abraham, I'm going to keep my half of the covenant, because I can do that, but I'm also going to keep your half too, because you can't possibly keep it. We cannot possibly hope to enter into a binding contract with God and fully uphold our end of it, because we, we're imperfect. We fail. We're selfish at, at our core. We're rebellious where we think, God, we, we know better th than you do. And so what this covenant that Moses reestablishes with God's people in Exodus, I mean, this all, goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. It's God saying, you will be my people and I will be your God. That I'm not asking you to keep this. I'm going to keep it for you. I need you to let me keep it for you. Look at what he says in Exodus 20. Ten Commandments come after this verse, but look what he says before he gives any of the Ten Commandments. For I am the Lord your God, who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. Why is that significant? God says up front, before there's any law, I am the Lord your God, who I rescued you. He reminds them, I rescued you. This is a hugely significant phrase right there. That phrase is used more than a hundred times throughout the Bible. It points to this moment right here, God rescuing his people just as he said he would. And those words describe God's character and his faithfulness and his love for his people. Because what he's saying is, I have rescued you before I gave you the law. I rescued you before you could possibly keep the law. You didn't even have it yet. God's not saying, keep the law and then I'll rescue you. Keep the law and then I'll love you. He says, I rescued you first, period. End of statement, because that's who I am and that's how much I love you. God's a covenant keeper. He makes a promise to us and then he makes our half of the promise for us. He rescues us before he asks anything of us. The rules are one-sided, right? Law is one-sided. Do this because you should. Covenant is two-sided. God has done his part and He's done your part as well. He makes it possible for you to respond. That's why marriage is such a great picture of the covenant. Marriage isn't a 50-50 proposition. Marriage is 100%, 100%. Marriage doesn't say you meet me in the middle. Marriage says I will go all the way to you because there will be times in your life that you will need me to do that. There will be times in your life that you will struggle, that, that you won't have much to give, and I'm going to meet you in that moment. I'm not going to ask you to come to me because I'm coming to you. That's what God has done for us. He knows that we need to be met where we are, and so he comes all the way to us. 
I love how this is talked about in, in this section. It look, let's look at Exodus 20, 18 to 19. We talked about this earlier, right? When the people heard the thunder and the loud blast of the ram's horn, and when they saw the flashes of lightning and the smoke billowing from the mountain, they stood at a distance. They were trembling with fear. They were afraid. And they said to Moses, you speak to us. But don't let God speak directly to us or they'll die. Right? They've seen God's power and they're afraid, but that power doesn't have to terrify us. Instead, it can fill us with awe and with wonder and with privilege that even though God is incredibly powerful, he still loves us and cares for us. That power shouldn't drive us away. Instead, it should draw us close. Because look how Moses responds to that fear. In verse 20, he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. For God has come in this way to test you so that your fear of him will keep you from sinning. Now, fear doesn't mean kind of terror like we think it means, the way we often use it. It means awe and, and reverence and respect. Healthy fear, right? The same way that I have healthy fear of my power tools. I use them with respect because they could, you know, take my arm off. And I like my arms. I have a healthy fear of them. Seeing God as the covenant keeper shapes our response to it. Because when we understand that God is a covenant keeper, we engage with God on a relational basis. On a relational basis. It's not a transaction, it's a relationship. God wants us to know him and love him and trust him. That relationship is incredibly important. It lays the foundation for faith. If you believe someone genuinely cares about you, wants the best for you, Rules feel a little different, don't they? They feel a little different. That's what God wants to communicate to us. We don't need to live in fear. It's no longer doing for God. Instead, it's being with God. That's what God wants for us. Deuteronomy 7.9 talks about this idea. It says, understand, therefore, that the Lord your God is indeed God. He is the faithful God who keeps his covenant for a thousand generations and lavishes his unfailing love on those who love him and obey his commands. God wants us to experience that. Listen, I love those words. Lavishes his unfailing love. Man, that sounds good. It's important for us to understand that God is a covenant keeper. We've been redeemed in order to obey. We don't obey in order to be redeemed. We've been rescued so that we can obey. We don't obey God in order for him to rescue us. And that is a fundamental paradigm shift because it says, I don't do this so God will do for me. It says, I can do because of what God has done. Fear is a good motivator, but love is an even better one. Love is an even better one. Think of the people in your life that you love. What are you willing to do for them? What are you willing to do for them? When we understand how deeply God loves us, it changes our motivation. It changes our heart. It means that we can approach obedience totally differently. We don't do to be loved. We do because we're loved. We don't do to be loved. We do because we're loved. 
We don't do in order to earn something from God. We do as a way to say thank you for what he's already done. Real, authentic obedience comes from that place. It comes from knowing that we don't keep the rules so that God will love us more. We do what he commands because he, he knows everything about us, where we failed, where we struggle, and he loves us anyway. God's love comes first. Our response to it, anything we do comes second. Because when it does, it comes not from our own ability, our own strength, our own experience. It comes out of the grace and mercy and power of God. That we see even all the way back in the beginning of the Old Testament, God's incredible love is poured out on his people. There's a picture in Exodus 24 when Moses is establishing this covenant that they make these sacrifices and he gathers the blood and he pours it into two buckets and one bucket is poured out on the altar as a symbol that a price has been paid for their sin, that they've been forgiven. And the second bucket is poured out on the people which is gross. I mean, that's, we can own that. That's, that's pretty gross. We're not going to do that this morning. Wouldn't that be good? And I have a bucket here. <laughs> but it's a powerful image because it's a picture to the people that they, the covenant has been confirmed by the blood, that they are now covered by that blood, that the, the blood that's been poured out over them protects them just as the blood of Jesus will ultimately be poured out for us and protect us, that, that our future is secured by that blood. God keeps his promises. God keeps his covenant. And because God is a covenant keeper, it changes our approach to, to what rules mean, to what instruction means. It changes everything. What do, what do we do with that stuff? Right? What do we do with that? Folks, the purpose of, of the covenant that we're talking about, this promise that God has made to us, is to restore and preserve our relationship with God. God wants us to know him and know the life that comes through him. One writer says it like this, God does not give us everything we want, but he does fulfill his promises, leading us along the best and straightest paths to himself. God wants us to end up with him and so when you think about that, when you think about your own attitude towards, towards rules and your own attitude towards, towards God, as we talk about the covenant more, I want to ask you a couple questions for you to think about. How do you see God right now? How do you see God at this moment in your life right now? What's your understanding of God's law? Is it a checklist to make sure that God, be, that, that God won't be upset with you? Is it the instructions of a cosmic bully that just wants you to do what he says? Or is it an opportunity to show God how thankful you are for what he's done for you? To show God how much you love him? What's motivating you right now? What's motivating you? Is, is it fear? Is it fear of consequences? Is it fear of God being angry or disappointed with you? Is it trying to earn God's love? What's your motivation right now? Understanding that helps us understand our actions because our actions come out of our motivations. They come out of our hearts. 
Where in your life are you doing things to be loved right now? Where in your life are you doing things to be loved? What would it look like for you to instead do things because you were loved? What would it look like to shift that? Living in freedom, that means knowing that nothing you can do can possibly make God love you any more than he already does. It gives us the freedom to go, I don't have to try harder. Instead, I can surrender more. It it means I don't have to try and earn God's love. He already loves me. And I can now live a life that says thank you to that. We can be obedient not to earn anything from God, but as a way to say thank you. What step of obedience is God calling you to take? Where can you start today? Seriously, where can you start today? We're going through Exodus in the Ridge Reading Challenge. Maybe for you, it's jumping in to that. It's saying, all right, that's a step of obedience that I can take, not because I have to, but because I understand what God has done for me. Maybe it's talking with him. Whether it's in your car or at home or in the morning while you eat your cereal. Maybe it's talking with God for, maybe for the first time. Maybe it's being willing to ask for help in an area that you're struggling. You've been resistant to that for a time. Maybe it's simply acknowledging that you are struggling. Maybe it's asking yourself, how can I thank you, God? How can I thank you in this moment right now? That's the one that's challenged me this week. Whatever it is for you, know that God, the covenant keeper, makes it possible for you. That now, we don't have to do to be loved. We can do because we are loved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that that's true. That we are loved. Father, we thank you for that great hope. That just like you rescued Israel before you ever asked anything of them, Lord, you do the same for us. You sent Jesus to live the life we should have lived and die the death we should have died. That we have the, the opportunity for freedom. And we have done nothing to invite it or ask for it or deserve it. Father, I pray that you would challenge us. Help us to understand a little bit more how significant it is to be known and loved by you, that instead of doing to be loved by you, we would do because we're loved by you. We thank you for the covenant that you made, that you know who we are and that we will fall short, and so you, through your son, keep our part for us, that we can live in the freedom you have bought. I pray this in your son's precious name. Amen.